Good morning. Welcome to Villain Week 3. Uh, if you want to direct your attention to the bulletins, uh, you'll see on the third announcement there, uh, September 8th, Sunday, September 8th, the Sunday after Labor Day, we're going to be changing our service times. So we, we got a 9.30 service and an 11 o'clock service now. Uh, starting September 8th, we're going to have a 9 a.m. service and a, and a 10.30 service. And there's a few reasons why. Uh, number one, our 9.30 service is overcrowded in our kids' ministry. And so we'll have 20-plus uh, two- to five-year-olds, plus 10, uh, plus, uh, 10 to 15 babies in, nur- in the nursery. And that's all in one room. So you've got like 40 kids under five in this room, divided in half. And it's just hard for our workers. And so to better minister to you and your families, we're trying to get some of you to sleep in. Okay, and go to the later service. Our 11 o'clock service is growing, but it'll grow faster if we move to 1030. So we, and when we did our kind of survey uh, several months ago and asked many of you if we were to change our service times from 9 uh, to 9 o'clock and to 1030, which would you most likely prefer? Most of you said, we still want to go to the 9 o'clock service. And we're going to call your bluff. <laughs> we'll see. Uh, so September 8th. So mark that on your calendars. Uh, this morning, uh, we're talking about some, uh, uh, one of the most infamous villains of all time. Uh, here's several villains that we may have heard of before. This is Benedict Arnold. Benedict Arnold betrayed the United States before they were really the United States and gave his loyalties to Britain. Then we have Cassius and Brutus, who, uh, literally stabbed Julius Caesar in the back and betrayed him. Uh, so these are some of the list of the, some of the more famous traitors or betrayals in history. Let me give you my list, okay? My top four of betrayals or traitors in maybe film history. Here we go. Number one, or number four is Lando Calrissian uh, in Empire Strikes Back, right? He's the reason Han Solo was frozen in carbonite. Uh, th- next, uh, Newman in Jurassic Park. <laughs> Newman. Uh, then this one, this one's not going to apply to everybody, but this is Nick Peterson from Bachelor Pad Season 2. And for those of you who know who this guy is, this means a whole lot to you, and you know what I'm talking about. Others of you are going, lost it. And then finally, the worst villain of all time in the history of all movies, say amen to Hans from Frozen. (laughs) Right? Total betray— hate that guy. Love is an open door. Um— I, when I started preparing for this message on Judas, I, I, I don't remember ever teaching on Judas before um, or doing any kind of Bible study on Judas because no one ever says like, you know, I've been reflecting a lot on the life of Judas and it's really been speaking to me. That, that doesn't happen. And so, uh, uh, but he's one of the most reviled villains of all time. Uh, this is a picture of the Last Supper. I remember at, growing up looking at paintings of the Last Supper and trying to find the most sinister, vile, evil, grotesque disciple and go, that's Judas. That's not in the painting. I-, I looked for the meanest one, but I didn't find him. The reason being that Judas is not portrayed like that because in real life, villains don't look like villains, right? There's not smoke emanating from their, you know, heads, and like red eyes, uh, real, in real life, villains look like me and you. Uh, and the same is true with Judas. 
So let's look at the story of Judas, and we'll see what we can learn from this villain. Look at Luke chapter 6. The, the notes will be on the screen. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray, spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them. He chose, whom he also designated as apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Uh, Jesus calls Judas. He's one of the twelve. He spent three years with Jesus, almost always with him. He saw the power of Jesus change people's lives. I believe that Judas was a committed disciple. Uh, I, I do. I believe he was as committed, if not more committed, than many of the other disciples. In the Gospel of Matthew, we're not given any hint that Judas is a bad guy or is going to betray until you get to chapter 26. Luke's Gospel and John's Gospel, they kind of tip you off early, even here, right? Who was Judas, who was to become the betrayer? Not so in Matthew's Gospel. Uh, if you want to know what Jesus saw in Judas and why he chose him, Understand this, that Judas left his family, his job, his friends, perhaps his chance at wealth and popularity and power to follow this marginalized up-and-coming Jewish rabbi and live hand-to-mouth, meal-to-meal, day-to-day, uh, walking from different towns throughout Galilee and the nation of Israel. I don't think Judas became a disciple with bad intentions from the get-go. There's this idiom, uh, which... Uh, the phrase, uh, close but no cigar. And it means to fall short of a successful outcome, right? Or a close call. And it was coined in the late 19th century, the early 20th century. And it comes from uh, the fairgrounds. And, you know, when we go to the fairgrounds and, uh, and the carnies are saying, hey, come here and, you know, uh, try this game. And, and there's, there's, you know, a kid on your arm saying, I, get me that huge giant dog, you know, stuffed animal. And so you're trying to throw darts at a balloon and uh, it's like almost impossible. And, and your kid wants you to get that present. Well, back a hundred years ago, when they did this at fairgrounds and carnival booths, uh, the, the prizes weren't for the children. They were for the adults. Uh, and they would often hand out cigars to people uh, if they won. And so that's the phrase you'd hear these carnies throughout these fairgrounds yelling, close, but no cigar. Uh, this is Judas. This is Judas. His failure is proclaimed for the past 2,000 years. He was close, but no cigar. And then we get to the story in John, and it kind of lets us in on the fact that all is not okay with Judas. Look at John 12. It says this, Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, she poured it on Jesus' feet, wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was to later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It's worth a year's wages. Well, that's reasonable, right? What a good man Judas is. But then John says, he did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as a keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Judas was chosen to be the treasurer. Matthew was the logical choice. Matthew was a tax collector. He's working with money all the time. But Judas, because he was seen as so upright, so honest, so faithful, so committed, such high integrity and high character, he was the one chosen 
to take care of the money. He was the treasurer. Uh, Jesus knew what was going to happen. Jesus knew the struggles that lied within Judas, yet he still chose him to be the disciple, and yet he still chose him to handle the money. Jesus chose Judas to oversee the money. It's like saying, Judas, I know you're a thief, but every day for the next three years as you follow me, you're going to have to wake up and you're going to have to make a choice. Money or me? Money or me? What's it going to be? Well, he, he chose money. Look at Matthew 26. It says this. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you, to Jesus? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Judas was so greedy that he didn't name his price. He just said, what will you give me? How much? This is greed. And it's one of the predominant theories of the last 2,000 years of why Judas betrayed Jesus. If you'd like to uh, learn about some of the other theories of why Judas may have betrayed Jesus, you can check out our social media. We posted a video this past Friday about another reason perhaps Judas uh, betrayed the Son of God. Greed is something we all struggle with. And as soon as somebody says that you struggle with something, you immediately think of ways to demonstrate that you don't struggle with it. Uh, As soon as somebody says you're not a certain way, you immediately think of a time when you were that way. Guys, how many times has this happened in, in marriage, right? At some point in every marriage, maybe at multiple points in my own marriage, our wives will say to us, you just don't help, uh, help out enough around the house. You don't help out. You don't do enough around the house. And what's the first thing that comes to our mind when our wives tell us this? Remember that time in 2014 when I unloaded the dishwasher? Do you not remember in 2014 when I unloaded the dishwasher? Don't help around the house, please. We immediately think of the one thing that we did that's an exception to the rule. You could walk up to the meanest person in the world and you go up to them and go, do you realize that everybody thinks that you're mean? And they will immediately think of the one nice thing they did and said four years before and they define themselves by that. So when I say we're greedy, I mean I'm greedy, and I mean you're greedy. Uh, And I know you're thinking, I gave away something two months ago. We're thinking of that one thing we did. Uh, When I say someone's greedy, we often think of like Scrooge McDuck, okay, from like DuckTales. And he's like laying on a mound of gold and he's just staring at his treasure. That's, that's not greedy. Or some woman at home and she's surrounded on her bed with jewelry and artwork and stacks of cash and she's just salivating over it. No, nobody does that, okay? That's not greed. Greed is the person who has very little. Greed is the person who has a medium amount. And greed is the person who has a whole lot, but they assume it all belongs to them. That's what Jesus called greed. And you know where greed leads? It leads to discontentment. It doesn't matter how many zeros you add to the end of your bank balance. We want to live a life of generosity, not greed. Look what Jesus says in Luke 12. Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. 
And maybe if we read that every day or say it enough times, we'll start living like that's true. It says, be on your guard. It's as if Jesus is saying that greed is aggressive. So be ready. It is aggressive. It ruins marriages. It ruins friendships. And in the case of Judas Iscariot, it ruins discipleship. You know what greed feels like? It feels normal. It's perhaps the most normal sin and therefore the most dangerous. In 17 years of full-time ministry, I have never had someone come up to me and say, you know, pastor, I really struggle with greed. It's never happened because we all struggle with it. Now, for those of you who are a little bit older, um, I, I'm 38, so pictures, if you're, if you're not, if you're younger than me, this may not work. If you're older than me, I, I think it'll be all right. So uh, go back to when you were 19, 20 years old, okay? Uh, some of you, that's really easy to do. Some of you, you got to really think, okay? When you were 19, 20, and you, you thought to yourself, man, if, if, if I was making X amount of dollars, I would be, I mean, I'd be done, right? I'd be debt-free. I'd be worry-free. And right now, you're making that much money and you still have debt and you're still worried. You know why? It's because you don't have a money problem. You have a contentment problem. You have a self-control problem. You have a spiritual problem, but you don't have a money problem. 95% of us who worry about money don't have a money problem. It's the other three. And so as followers of Jesus, we ask this question, how much more money would, would you need to stop worrying about money? 5% more? 15% more? 50% more? If, if you had 50% more money, you'd be like, now I'm good. Like, I'm good now, and now I'm content. I'm not worried about finances anymore. Uh, no. Because I could show you someone who makes 50% more who still is worried. I could show you someone who makes 100% more and is still worried and still has debt and still has issues. No, if, no but really, if... if if I could just get this amount, pay these off, I'm good, no complaints, then I'll be content, then I'll be happy, then I'll be worry-free. No, you won't. You're kidding yourself. Because as soon as you get that, there's another if only, and it's an appetite that we just can never satisfy. As Christians, we're about giving, not greed. This week, I received an email from one of our missionaries in Africa, and he is a Malawian man uh, working in Kenya. He has a, a wife and um, two wonderful kids, and he sent me an email saying that uh, to pray for him and his family because his younger brother just passed away in Malawi. And so I said, yes, Absolutely. We are praying for the family. He asked for prayers. That's all he asked for. But because of your giving, attached to our thoughts and prayers was also enough money to cover his travel expenses and also much of his brother's funeral. Uh, we're about generosity, not greed. Greed comes naturally to us. It's the disease of greed infected Judas. Look at Matthew 26, verse 20. It says this, when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sad and began to say to him, one after the other, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. 
Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Jesus answered, You have said so. Did you notice that? That Jesus is around the table at the Last Supper, and he says, one of you will betray me. And all the disciples go around. They go, surely not me, Lord. Surely not me, Lord. Surely not me, Lord. And they get to Judas, and he goes, surely not me, Rabbi. It's as stark as we think it is, and it's as stark as we sound. Lord means master, in control. Rabbi means teacher. So they all said, surely not me, Lord, my master. And Judas says, surely not me, teacher. You see, he never moved from teacher to Lord. Uh, Some of us haven't moved Jesus from teacher to Lord. And I'm just saying that God's calling you to move, move past Jesus is a good guy to Jesus is Lord over my family, Jesus is Lord over my finances. Jesus is Lord over my sex life. Jesus is Lord over how much money I make and how I make money. And this may sound harsh, but we have to move past Sunday morning quickies with Jesus. And instead, we need to respond to his proposal. The truth is he doesn't want your Sunday mornings. He wants all of you. And he gives all of himself. We've got to move from my teacher to my Lord. He gives us all of him. And John tells us of of this scene in a unique way, and he gives us some unique details. This is the Last Supper, according to John. After Jesus washes his disciples' feet, it says this in John 13, leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, who is it? Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then, Dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered him. So Jesus told him, what you are about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. I love that last line. It's, it's like an aside, right? Uh, Judas went out literally and figuratively into the dark. It was night. Now in the ancient Middle East, the host of the banquet customarily took a piece of bread, dipped it, and handed it to the guest of honor. And Jesus here at the Last Supper takes it, dips it, and gives it to the guest of honor, Judas Iscariot, the one who is to betray him. Some suggest that Jesus did this as a last gesture to move Judas toward love. To move him away from betrayal into love. It was a last effort for Judas to recant his evil intentions. And Jesus earlier had done something else. He washed the feet of Judas. It's such a powerful, humbling experience to have the King of Kings, the Son of God, wash your feet. In first century Jerusalem, your feet were dirty. They were gross. There was no Nikes back then. You had sandals and dirt roads. There's no asphalt. 
and, and it was just stinky, dirty feet. And it wasn't, it wasn't, it was, the disciples would always do whatever they could for the master. But there was one job disciples never did for their master. Wash the feet. That was for the lowest of the lows. That was for the slave, the servant. And here, Jesus himself becomes the slave and washes his disciples' feet. And yeah, he washed Peter's feet, the rock, the one whom he was going to build his church. Yes, he washed John's feet, the disciple whom Jesus loved, the one who takes care of Jesus' mother after he dies on the cross. Yeah, he washed their feet. James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Yes, he washed their feet, but he also washed the feet of Judas, the one who was to betray him. What was going through his mind? as he watched Jesus perform this lowly task. What emotions were there in the heart of Judas as their eyes met? When we're not in the right mindset, Jesus still shows his love in the hopes that it will move our hearts towards him. So you could be just smack dab in the middle of betrayal, in the middle of willful disobedience to God, sin, whatever it is. And Jesus is still showing love to you. And he's still doing good things for you. And it's not to bless your bad choices. It's to woo you back to himself. Notice once again that Judas blends in with the rest of them. Jesus straight up says, the one, the one who's going to betray me is the one who I dip this in and I give it to him. And then he dips it and gives it to Judas. And the disciples are like, I don't get it. They don't get it at all. Because... Uh, Judas seems like a great guy. He fooled them all except for Jesus. If he was the obvious bad guy who had steam coming off of him and he's always shifty and sneaking stuff in, I bet the disciples would have gone, when Jesus is talking about who's going to betray, I think it's Judas. He's the one with the shifty eyes, always kind of sneaking off by himself. There's no word of that. There's no hint of that. They're confused. They don't understand. Each wondered, if it was themselves. The appearance of good can never be proof that there is no bad. Well, it looks good. They look, they said they didn't. As the old hymn says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. We are prone. The moment has arrived, and Jesus is with his 11 disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it was night. Matthew 26, it says this. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the 12, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, greetings, rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, do what you came for, friend. Isn't there such a heaviness to this scripture? In studying Judas, I just, even in this room, I, I, I sense a weightiness, a heaviness, because we're reading about the betrayal of the Son of God. When Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss in the Garden of Gethsemane, he whispers, Rabbi, and Jesus says, Friend. Betrayed with a kiss, a gesture of love used to betray love. Jesus was arrested, 
falsely condemned by authorities. Now, what is Judas's response? Look at Matthew 27, the next chapter. It says this. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us? They replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. There is a, it is right that there is a heaviness to this story, to this passage. See, Judas tries to undo what cannot be undone. Some in the Christian tradition have wondered if Judas's so-called repentance means that he has escaped eternal damnation. And such speculation rises, you know, it, it focuses on Judas rather than the one whom Judas betrays. And what Judas did is not beyond the forgiveness enacted by Jesus' crucifixion. But it's an adventure in missing the point. The point is not Judas. The point is Jesus. What about us? What about you and me when we know what Jesus desires for us and we sell it short, we, we take our, our way of momentary gratification rather than obedience of remaining true to Jesus in those times where you feel a bit like Judas, standing in the garden all alone with your sin, we act like Jesus, Judas. We react like him. We first recoil, like pulling your hand from a hot stove, like shock, like... How could I? I can't believe I did that. Then we move to remorse, anguish of mind brought on by your guilt. I am so sorry. Look what I've done. And then repay. We want to take it back. We want to do over. We want a mulligan. We don't want it to count against our score. Judas couldn't. And we can't either. See, guilt and remorse doesn't mean repentance. Just because you feel bad, that doesn't mean repent. Judas felt guilty about what he had done. He felt so bad that he gave the money back. But guilty Judas went to the wrong person for forgiveness. He went to the chief priests. He went to the temple Repentance means turning around. See, Judas could have turned around and went to Jesus hanging on the cross and asked for forgiveness. And then there's a different ending to the story. Judas felt guilty, but he still wouldn't turn to the only one who could actually forgive him of his guilt. You may feel guilty about your actions and the way of living. And we might go to a doctor, a shrink, to feel better, to ease our guilty conscience, but that doesn't mean we're repentant. Guilty feelings don't equal repentance. It's when we turn and follow Jesus. It's, following Jesus is, isn't about never failing. It's about how you respond when you do fail. This was Judas's moment of truth. 
He had listened to the parables. He had listened to the sermons. He saw him walk on water. He saw him turn water into wine. He saw him raise the dead, open the eyes of the blind. He broke bread with the Lord Jesus. Judas walked and talked with Jesus for three years and never saw him lie, never saw him lose his temper, never saw him sin in any way. And the tale of Judas is this, that you can be in close proximity to Jesus for years and never know him. This is the tale of Judas. And he still went to the wrong place for forgiveness. I want to invite knowing the band to come up. I'll close with this. I I, I want to close with Jesus. And I want to look at what, what what is Jesus thinking here while he is literally and figuratively being stabbed in the back by his disciple. Because Jesus is not like us. He's God. And God has a different way of categorizing conflict than we do. So often in my life, I associate God with comfort and the devil with conflict. Right? If I've got comfort in my life, that's God's doing. If I've got conflict in my life, that's the devil's doing. But sometimes it is the devil that will make your life comfortable So you come to the point where you think you don't need God. And it is God who will allow a conflict that will make you fall down on your knees and ask God to restore unto you the joy of your salvation. I think some of us need to go home and relabel conflict to opportunity. Change the label. How dumb would it be for us to put down the weights just as they get heavy and expect any muscular improvement? No. We do it all the time in conflict. We run from conflict and we pray for blessing. And often we're running from what we're praying for. How can we receive it? Jesus sees things differently. Peter and Judas were on the same payroll. Jesus called them both. He called Judas' friend. And at one point he says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You see, Jesus knew that on the other side of this conflict, on the other side of this stab in the back, on the other side of this betrayal was resurrection, was love conquering hate, was generosity conquering greed, was life conquering death. So whatever conflict you're going through, whatever betrayal you're experiencing, God is already on the other side of it, making it beautiful, making it new, bringing life to where there's darkness. God, I pray in Jesus' name that we experience the power of resurrection, the love that you showed not only to your disciples, not only to Judas, the one who was to betray you, but the love you showed us on that cross, that you had us, you had our kids in the forefront of your mind and heart when you were nailed to that tree. That you love us that you knit us together in our mother's womb, that you've got a plan for us. And God, we're selling you short. And God, we're selling you out for way less than 30 pieces of silver. And so God, I pray that we would be ravished by your love in your heart. That we say goodbye to greed, hello to generosity. That we say goodbye to infidelity, to promiscuity, And we say yes to a a love that is sustained by your spirit that remains true. So God, I pray just for this long pathway of obedience that, uh, that you help us to stay on that. And God, we thank you that in the ways in which we act like Judas and fail like Judas, I thank you that your response towards us is always love. 
You're always washing our feet. You're always making us the guest of honor when we're the ones stabbing you in the side. So God, strengthen us, draw us closer to you, Jesus. And Lord, I thank you that the good news, the gospel, is not about, is Jesus Lord of your life? It is, is Jesus Lord of all? And so God, we declare that you're Lord of all this morning in this place. We love you, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand as we declare the Lordship of Jesus over all?